0: Here at Shelter in Place, we do our best to keep our episodes family friendly, even when we're talking about hard stuff. Today's episode is about mental health, and in the course of that conversation, we mentioned self-harm and suicide. If you have young kids listening, you might want to pause this and listen later. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, we urge you to call the Free Confidential National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800 273 8255. This is Shelter in Place, a podcast about coming together in a world that pulls us apart. From Oakland, California to Hamilton, Massachusetts, I'm Laura Joyce Davis.
1: When you're in a dark place, you're kind of in a tunnel with no lights, and you don't know the way out of that tunnel. So it's about putting in those lights so that you know how to get out of that tunnel.
0: The other night as I was getting ready for bed, I heard shrieking from the room my three kids share. When I opened the door, the first thing I saw was our four-year-old daughter, Matea, suspended in midair. She was clutching a blanket, which her two older siblings were raising and lowering like a pulley from the top bunk. All three kids were yelling, too impressed with her ingenuity to notice me standing in the doorway. In an instant, the two older kids lost their grip, and Matea dropped with a thud onto a pile of blankets and pillows beneath her. The glee of the previous moment turned into bickering and sobbing. And this was all before I'd even had a chance to scold them for still being awake. With three kids under the age of 10, my most frequent parenting struggle is keeping my cool when the noise escalates, which is most of the time. Obedience is a real challenge when you can't hear the instructions in the first place. That same four-year-old who was rappelling from the bunk bed already has a squeaky voice, but when she gets upset, it ratchets up to a screech a full octave higher. My kids have also inherited my emotional intensity, so it's a rare day when there isn't at least one meltdown. Even though childhood is far in the rearview mirror for me, I still remember what it was like to be a highly sensitive kid who got my feelings hurt easily. I remember feeling overwhelmed in those moments, like my sadness was so big and heavy that it might topple me over. I'm now watching those scenarios replay themselves in my own kids. I've spent a lot of time and money and counseling trying to deal with those big emotions, but I still struggle with them today. One of the best things I've learned in all of that work on myself has been to accept my negative emotions when they come, instead of trying to avoid them. One of the best tools I've learned for doing that is a technique called RAIN, popularized by the psychologist and meditation teacher Tara Brock. RAIN is an acronym. The R stands for recognize, as in I feel angry or I feel sad. The A is for allow. In our house, we actually say this out loud. Frustration, I allow you to be here. I know you won't be here forever. I is investigate. Where do I feel this emotion in my body, in my clenched jaw, my tense shoulders, the pit of my stomach? And finally, in is for nurture. Nurture is the part that always feels the cheesiest to do, but it's also everyone's favorite. Tara Brock says to physically put your hand on your heart or hug yourself and say out loud something like, it's going to be okay. This is hard, but we're going to get through this. My kids have taken to saying to themselves, it's okay, my little dumpling, which makes them giggle, since by then they've almost always calmed down. RAIN is like any self-help tool. When you're in the heat of the moment, it's annoying to have someone tell you to stop and recognize your emotion. But when we have the presence of mind to do it, RAIN is a gift at the Davis household. With a little help, even our four-year-old can do it and all of that shrieking and screeching quiets itself down. More often than we'd like to admit, Nate and I have found ourselves locked into an argument with our own voices escalating. Our two oldest kids, who are nine and seven, will now walk into the room and say, rain, take a deep breath and do rain. This disarms me every single time. It gives me hope to know that my kids have the tools to deal with big emotions that I'm still trying to learn. Even though I can recall overhearing the words melodramatic and melancholic used to describe me as a kid, I never thought about depression as something that could apply to me. I had a friend in high school who had bipolar disorder and another friend in college who went through a rough bout of depression. But even as I tried to be supportive, I didn't understand their pain. Even when I attended the funeral of a middle school classmate who killed himself, I couldn't really imagine what had gotten him to that place. Not until I was an adult did I understand how crippling depression can be, how it can distort reality and make you repel people even as they're trying to help you. During this pandemic, our world has experienced one long-sustained collective grief. Many of us have had our lives upended, forcing us to confront just how little control we have on a daily basis. We've been calling this season of Shelter-in-Place our pandemic odyssey because when COVID-19, wildfires, and the losses of pandemic living hit our family hard a year ago, we found ourselves launched onto a journey of unknowns that included leaving our home, traveling from one coast to the other, and questioning almost everything along the way. There's been a lot of uncertainty. Sometimes that uncertainty has looked more like despair, According to the CDC, six months into this pandemic, over 40% of U.S. adults reported struggling with mental health or substance abuse. That same study compared pre-pandemic numbers in 2019 and showed that the number of people reporting anxiety disorder symptoms tripled, while those reporting depressive disorder symptoms quadrupled. Most of us don't need statistics to know that the pandemic has been hard on our mental health. Today, I'm talking with someone who understands that struggle well.
1: My name is Winnie. I'm currently an apprentice at Shelter-in-Place, and I'm also currently a student at the University of Waterloo studying math and
0: business. When I interviewed Winnie back in December, she told me that she'd started her own podcast, but she didn't come from a creative background, and she was working toward a career in finance. There was something here at Shelter-in-Place that she wanted to explore, but she didn't know exactly what that looked like or what would come of it. I told Winnie that I didn't have a problem with her not knowing where she was headed. We could figure that out together. I just needed to know if she was willing to jump in and see where this would take her. When she said yes, neither of us realized just how much of life we'd end up sharing over the course of that journey. Winnie is Canadian, but her parents are first-generation Chinese immigrants. Even though Winnie grew up speaking Mandarin along with English, she didn't have the depth of connection to Chinese culture that her parents had.
1: My parents were born and raised in very Chinese traditional values, and they kind of carried that forward as they came to Canada. But I was exposed to a lot of Western values, and so there was a little bit of clash there. Ever since I was six years old, I was always doing about four extracurriculars at one time. So even as a kid, I was super stressed all the time. I just figured that that was the norm, and I thought that was okay.
0: Winnie and I had very different upbringings, but in some ways, we ended up in the same place. As a kid growing up at the intersection of suburbia and farmland outside Minneapolis, I spent my childhood wandering through forests and exploring the surrounding countryside with my siblings. I had a lot of downtime, a lot of time to let my imagination run wild, but working hard was also a core family value. I'm grateful for the work ethic my parents gave me, and though it was my mom who signed me up for piano lessons and made sure I knew how to be safe on a horse, I never felt pressured to do a lot of activities. I wanted to do music and sports and church youth group and all of the other things that I saw my older siblings take part in. In high school, I learned that I had a gift for running fast, and that gift quickly became an obsession as I logged 30, then 40, then 50 miles a week and caught the eye of collegiate track coaches. I don't regret those opportunities and experiences, but by the time I got to college, my idea of what was normal was distorted. I didn't know how to slow down. I lived with a constant buzz of stress and a continual need to do more and do it better.
1: Mental health has always been something that I struggled with. The way that it shows up is a little bit different for everyone. And for me, it was in the form of a lot of academic stress, a lot of loneliness from friends leaving. What I realized over time was that when I wasn't busy, I didn't feel comfortable being in my own thoughts. That's actually really scary.
0: The year after college, I lived in Australia and volunteered with an organization that helped at-risk youth. Part of the program was a community living situation where we all cooked, cleaned, and ate our meals together in addition to working together. My teammates were from all over the world. For the first time in my life, I was in a place where my accomplishments didn't attract others. I wasn't a star athlete or singing solos up on a stage. My teammates often referred to me as a nerd because I liked to read books and write stories. Most of them hadn't gone to college and had negative associations with school. Though I had a roommate, it was the loneliest year of my life. My husband, Nate, who was my boyfriend at the time, was across the world in Boston, too poor to buy a plane ticket to visit me. Before that year, I'd felt insecure sometimes but in the company of people who were irritated by my ambition, I began to doubt myself in a way that was new. Maybe I was as socially awkward as I suddenly felt around my teammates. Maybe I wasn't actually all that much fun. I wrote this in letters to Nate, in the short stories that I conjured up to pass the time. I did eventually make friends in that group, and for as painful as that year was, it taught me to be alone with myself. I learned that being a writer required solitude, But a seed of self-doubt had also taken root, a small but powerful lie that whispered that no matter what I accomplished, I would never be enough. That seed stayed dormant for years, but it shot up like a weed when I was in my late 20s. My graduate thesis was a novel set in New York City. So during winter break, I visited a good friend in the East Village to walk the streets where my fictional characters lived. I spent days wandering through Alphabet City, I trekked all the way up to Midtown and through Central Park. I took classes with aspiring Broadway dancers to get inside the head of my character, who was a dancer, too. In that city so full of ambition, I began to examine my own. I think I have a problem, I told my friend one evening. I have a list of about 15 things that I want to be great at. Being a writer is only one of them. I'm starting to realize that I don't have time to do all of those things. Not well, anyway but I don't want to let anything go. My friend looked at me and said, Laura, you have to let something go. You'll kill yourself trying if you don't. I nodded, but didn't say what I was thinking at the time, which was that I couldn't let anything go. This was who I was, and yet at the same time, I knew my friend was right, and I hated it. Underneath all of that striving was a secret shame, a belief that I had to accomplish great things to be a great person. The problem with that belief was that no matter how much I accomplished, it was never enough. At the same time, my ambition was often isolating. Less driven friends felt intimidated or put off by my constant activity, while others gave up reaching out when I didn't immediately reach back. It wasn't until I found myself in a soul-sucking job with a marriage that was crumbling before I understood just how devastating the consequences of my ambition could be. For Winnie, this struggle came to a head in college when she finally realized how exhausted she was
1: I remember one time when I was in my little university apartment room. I had one roommate and she was great, but I wasn't super close to her. I was dealing with a lot of academic stress, my grades were falling and my parents and I had a heated argument about something that I don't quite remember, but I just remember this feeling piling up on top of me and I was lying on my yoga mat in my room and I just felt the world crumbling. I remember that I was... Tearing up, and I looked at the nearest thing to me, and at that time it was a pair of scissors. And that was the first time that I inflicted pain on myself. I knew that some people turn to cutting because it makes them feel a sense of, like they're getting that sense of attention. I didn't particularly do it for that. I just wanted to see if it would help. It didn't really help. It was more just I didn't know what else to do. I remember that was the first instance that I realized that I had some kind of a problem.
0: I'll be right back with more of this story right after this short break. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you've struggled with mental health issues during this pandemic year, I hope that listening to this episode makes you feel less alone. For me, and for Winnie, counseling has been a crucial part of dealing with depression, which is why I'm so excited to recommend BetterHelp. That's Better H-E-L-P. They're the world's leading online counseling platform. When you go to betterhelp.com slash shelter, you can sign up to meet online for individual or couples counseling, or even find therapy for your teenage kids. Just fill out a short questionnaire, and BetterHelp will match you with a counselor who will meet with you at a time that's convenient for you right from the comfort of your own home. BetterHelp is also more affordable than traditional counseling, and shelter-in-place listeners can get 10% off their first month of counseling when you sign up at betterhelp.com shelter. The National Center for Biotechnology Information, or the NCBI, defines mental illness as a health condition that changes a person's thinking, feelings, or behavior and makes it difficult to function. Nearly 292 million people currently struggle with mental illness, making it the leading cause of disability worldwide. It affects all ages, genders, cultures, and income levels. It can range from mild depression or anxiety to more severe forms of mental illness like schizophrenia. The National Institute of Mental Health estimates that nearly one in five Americans live with some form of mental illness, And the NCBI says that individuals who have a mental illness don't necessarily look like they're sick, especially if their illness is mild. The first time I realized that I was struggling with depression, I was at the peak of my career as a collegiate running coach. After getting my MFA in fiction at Mills, I got hired to coach running there. In four years, I'd started a track program from scratch and taken a last-place cross-country team to a conference championship and an appearance at nationals. The other coaches in our conference had voted me coach of the year. My friends knew that I was stressed, but I was still high functioning. Even my husband, Nate, assumed that my sadness was situational since I was working long hours and our marriage was struggling. When we think of depression, we often think it'll be obvious, like someone lying in bed and wearing their pajamas all day long. But for me and for Winnie, it didn't look like that at all, at least not publicly. If you asked any of my friends prior to me telling them that I had suicidal thoughts,
1: they would all agree and think that I had nothing going on inside of me, that I wasn't thinking all these things. Because I had gotten really good at covering up all those shames and feelings and negative thinking to portray a certain image that my parents wanted me to portray, that my friends thought I was as well.
0: Winnie attends one of Canada's top universities, known for its rigorous academics and high rates of employment after graduation. But she says that for some students, all of that rigor has come at a cost.
1: The University of Waterloo has been experiencing an uptick in suicides. Not just people talking more about mental health, but actual suicides, like actual people choosing to end their life by jumping off of a campus building. I remember the first time that came up, my mom's reaction was, oh, that's so selfish of the kid, committed suicide. Because you think about what the parents have done for that kid. They've invested so much, and in some cases, it was the parents immigrating to another country, giving up their entire life for their kid, and now that kid decided to end their life. At the time, I didn't think my mental health was a really big problem, so I had dismissed it. I don't talk to her about my emotions. But every time now that I think about bringing up my own mental health problems, I think back to the reactions that she had and how she would react to me. If you were to call my mom, she would just say, she's doing good, she's studying business and math, and she's going into corporate finance, and it's a steady job. She would lay out the facts. And I think the reason why she doesn't talk to me about emotions is partially because she doesn't think about her own emotions. And that makes sense, because she came here as an immigrant with nothing, had to work her way up. She's always been in survival mindset, so I'm extremely proud of her for that. But I didn't grow up in that environment. I have emotions and I think about happiness and I think about the life that I want to achieve. And I know that comes from a place of privilege, but I do think about that.
0: When he says that while it's hard for anyone to ask for help when they're struggling with mental illness, it's especially hard in the context of Chinese culture, where asking for help is generally seen as a sign of weakness. Acknowledging an individual's mental illness or even a family history of mental illness means losing face and admitting a failure in the family system. In 1994, the Chinese government passed a law requiring premarital examinations for hereditary illnesses, including mental disorders. If an illness was found, the couple would be asked to postpone or cancel their marriage, or agree to never bear children. In 2003, another law was passed in its place that effectively abolished the mandatory requirement, but its impact is still felt today by younger generations. Data from the Canadian Community Health Survey Cycle has shown that first and second generation Chinese Canadians like Winnie are less likely to seek medical help for mental illness than other Canadians. Western approaches to mental health tend to emphasize individuality and pharmacological intervention, and may even dismiss Chinese healing methods as alternative. For years, Winnie struggled alone quietly, afraid to reach out. Since keeping her pain to herself was culturally accepted, For a long time, she thought that what she was dealing with was normal.
1: A lot of my friends who I had spoken to were like, yeah, we've experienced that as well. It's fairly common to have those thoughts and I thought, okay, I guess I'm completely normal and I shouldn't seek counseling, I shouldn't seek help and that's reserved for people that have bigger problems than I do. And that's kind of why I put aside therapy as long as I did because I didn't think that I needed it or I deserved it in a sense because I thought I should give it to people who needed it more.
0: Even though I grew up in a family that talked a lot about emotions, I still felt a lot of shame when I realized I was depressed. I think part of that was because I'd never seen my parents struggle with mental health. More is caught than taught, as the saying goes. I knew my parents were supportive of counseling, but they didn't seem to need it themselves. Though no one ever said so, the lesson I took was that counseling was for people who were in some way broken. Winnie mentioned the cultural differences that prevented her from connecting with her parents about mental health, but generational differences also play a role. In 2018, the American Psychiatric Association reported that the younger the generation, the more likely they were to have reported receiving mental health treatment or going to therapy, with Gen Z, the generation after millennials, leading the way. We're talking about mental health more in public spaces, and even for my generation, the topic has become more normalized. But older generations also had their own version of the survivor mentality that Winnie mentioned. My parents weren't Chinese immigrants, but education was their ladder out of the lower class. Even after they climbed that ladder and my dad became a physician, that survivor mentality never really disappeared. My dad's job required him to work long hours, often on the weekends or late at night when he was on call or taking care of an emergency procedure. And so a lot of the responsibility of raising four kids fell to my mom. Though I have plenty of tender memories with both of my parents, I can also remember hearing the phrase, tough love. We were discouraged from pity parties and taught early to be self-sufficient. I'm grateful for those lessons. Some of them I'm passing along to my own kids. It's a wonderful gift to be able to take care of yourself, to feel strong enough to face life's challenges, to feel brave enough to go after impossible things. But it's also incredibly lonely to feel that your very worth depends on those pursuits. No one ever communicated that to me, and I don't think my parents would say it's true. But the underbelly to all of that self-sufficiency and ambition was that when I was struggling, I believed that I had failed, At some point, both Winnie and I realized that we needed help. For me, that moment came more than a decade ago, when Nate and I finally went to marriage counseling and I left my coaching job. For Winnie, that moment came during this pandemic.
1: It was a Friday morning, and it wasn't even my first therapy session. It was maybe about 10 minutes. They would ask you the standardized questions, and they had asked me, have you ever hurt yourself or thought about hurting other people? And they asked me that question twice. Both times, I immediately said no. Because that was kind of my instinct, to never show the pain that I was feeling inside, to kind of cover it up. But then at the end of the session, I came clean, and I told them that I had been thinking about all these things for a while. It was the first time that I've admitted to a stranger that I had a problem, and they started to ask me about time frames. And that's when I started crying, because I realized that it was actually quite recent, that I was still thinking all these suicidal thoughts. I think a large part of why people don't go forward with the suicide is because they fear the repercussions that it'll have on the people that they've met, especially their parents. That's when it got really scary because at that point I was thinking that I didn't care how it would affect my parents. It was coming to terms with a stranger admitting how serious my problems were. I wasn't expecting to cry at all, but I I was bawling buckets of tears.
0: I used to think of mental health like a light switch. I was either on or off. But over the years, I've come to understand that it's more of a dial that gets turned up or down. Even though Winnie was suicidal, there were still moments in her life where she felt okay. According to the Canadian Mental Health Association, where we are in that continuum of well or unwell depends on a combination of genetics, our external environment, the situations life hits us with, and whether or not we have people around us who can support us. Environmental factors can include everything from poor nutrition to exposure to toxins like lead and tobacco smoke. Sometimes we can point to specific events that knocked us down, like the death of a loved one, or a job loss, or chronic pain, or a terminal illness. Other times, it's more of a slow turning up and down of the dial, noticing over time that there are more bad days than good ones, and that it's gotten harder and harder to get back to baseline. When our family set out on our pandemic odyssey last September and made the drive from California to Massachusetts, we didn't know how long we'd be gone or if we'd be able to return. I knew we were lucky to have families who would help us if things got desperate and that ultimately we'd be okay. But it was unnerving to have 16 years of living in a place we loved suddenly yanked out from under us. To have to resurrect questions about home and vocation and family that we'd long ago put to rest. When you read Homer's Odyssey, it's clear that the ancient Greeks weren't really into mental health. We don't know if Odysseus was depressed when he lost his crew to unnatural disasters and various enemies, including a cyclops and a six-headed monster. But we do know that from the beginning to end, Odysseus's journey was a hard one. Perhaps the starkest moment in the story happens when he's finally released after seven years of captivity on Calypso's Island, only to lose his remaining crew members in a shipwreck sent by the god Poseidon. But even when it looks like Odysseus has finally met his end, there's help. A sea nymph named Aino takes pity on Odysseus and gives him a protective veil that helps him to reach the shore where he can finally recover. Depression can feel like that storm, tearing your ship apart just when you think that things can't get any worse. Over the years, I've experienced depression enough times to recognize it when it's coming. I know all the things I need to do to help myself get out of it. Sleep, exercise, eat well, call a friend, pray, meditate, or get out in nature. The depression had been there crouching at my door before the pandemic. I'd mostly staved it off. But as we'd driven across the country and gotten closer and closer to our destination, those coping mechanisms weren't working as well as they usually did. In a previous episode of Shelter-in-Place titled Between Family and a Hard Place, I talked about a stop we made to see some of my family in the Midwest, about halfway through our own pandemic odyssey. Most nights on the journey, we'd been sleeping in a tent or sharing a room with our kids, and so by the time we pulled into my parents' driveway, we were exhausted. A couple of days in, my family and I got into a big argument, the kind that only comes up about once a decade. I knew my family loved me, but in that moment, when it felt impossible to be around the people who were supposed to be my safe harbor, the conflict left me feeling shipwrecked. On the day after the big blowup, I laced up my shoes and went for a run on the street where my family lives, an arrow straight road through apple orchards and farmland with no shoulder or sidewalk. The road is never busy, but when cars come by, they're always driving fast. I cried as I plodded along, and my feet felt impossibly heavy. I didn't hate myself or doubt that I was loved, but I remember thinking that it would be okay if a car drifted to the side of the road and hit me. All of it—the relationships, the financial struggle, the big questions about where we were going and whether or not we'd get to go home—felt suddenly like too much. I wanted to slip into a long, deep sleep. To have all of that striving and struggling finally stop. What I was experiencing in that moment is what's referred to as suicidal ideation. The World Health Organization reports that 800,000 people die from suicide every year. That's one person every 40 seconds. In 2017, suicide was the 15th leading cause of death in the world, ahead of malaria and homicide. But numbers around suicide often don't show the whole picture. In 2019, 12 million adults age 18 or older reported having serious thoughts about suicide. When I was out on that country road, I knew I wouldn't step out in front of a car and end my life. I still had enough perspective to remember that however miserable I might feel, there were people whose lives would be worse if I were gone, my kids and my husband especially. However dim it was, the spark of life was still in me. As terrible as I felt in that moment, I knew from experience that it would flare to life again. It was a similar spark that kept Winnie going, the silver lining to all that ambition.
1: I've always been a very ambitious kid. I do have this ambition inside of me to want to, in some small way, change the world. And I knew that if I wanted to be the best version of myself, that I had to be alive
0: to do that. I've come to see ambition as both a blessing and a curse. At its best, it gives me the courage to do things that scare me, but that will help me grow. It gives me the energy to fan that flame in others. The ambition in and of itself isn't bad, but left unguided, it can make me feel insufficient. Like Odysseus, I need help to channel that ambition. Even in good times, I need friends who can remind me that I am more than what I do. I've had seasons of going to counseling where a trained therapist was able to help me change my thought patterns and understand how my past experiences have influenced my current behaviors. I've learned to lean on my faith, not just in a theoretical way. I found solace and practices like RAIN that can help me zoom out from the intensity of the moment. Sometimes I need my own I know's veil. When I got back from that run, when life felt too hard to keep going, I spent some time talking with my husband. I got a good night's sleep. The next morning, the conflict was still there, but I felt a lot better. I apologized to my parents and tried to release myself from the shame I'd been feeling ever since the blow-up started. But that week, I also reached out to my doctor. I told her that some days I was okay, and then something would happen, an argument with a loved one or some disappointing news, and it would totally derail me. I'd feel depressed for days, moving through life like I was underwater. She suggested I start taking an antidepressant designed to increase the amount of serotonin in my brain, a neurotransmitter that, among other things, modulates mood. I was nervous about this initially, worried that it would change my personality or have terrible side effects. But I also knew that I needed something more than what I was doing. Months later, the biggest change I've noticed is that I feel more like myself. My favorite meditation instructor, Jeff Warren, who does a daily meditation called The Daily Trip on the Calm app, says that when we get in that depressed funk, it's like we're in a mood tunnel, where all we can see is that intense feeling. We forget that we're in a tunnel, or that there's a way out. Winnie's therapist used that metaphor too. You're in a tunnel with no lights, and you don't know the way
1: out. You don't see any light. I needed to find a way to understand how to help myself when I was in those down moments. She says that when you're in a dark place, you don't see any light, so it's about putting in those lights prior to you entering that dark tunnel so that you know how to get out of that tunnel. Maybe a box that you can reference every time you go into a dark place, or maybe it's a video that you can always look at when you're feeling sad. Put those lights in place prior to you getting into that dark tunnel.
0: A few years ago, a therapist I was seeing suggested that I make a list of all of the things that were good and true, even when I was feeling bad. For years, I kept that list taped to my wall, right next to my computer, where I would see it every day. It was a kind of antidote to the list I'd made all those years ago of the impossible things that I could never achieve. I still pull it out whenever I feel myself going into that dark mood tunnel and need some lights. That list reminds me that I'm doing my dream job, regardless of the outcome, that I have people in my life who love me, even when I'm depressed that my worth doesn't depend on what I do, but who I was created to be. Until I experienced it myself, I didn't understand that depression and other mental health struggles weren't just something you could get over. On the NCBI's website, it says, A person who has a mental illness cannot simply decide to get over it, any more than someone who has a different chronic disease such as diabetes, asthma, or heart disease can. A mental illness, like those other diseases, is caused by a physical problem in the body. As scientists continue to investigate the brains of people who have mental illnesses, they're learning that mental illness does have a biological basis. It seems to physically change our brains, and it can increase our chances of stroke, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease. But because mental illness can't be diagnosed with a blood test or an x-ray, mental health professionals have to diagnose mental illnesses based on the symptoms that a person has. It's worth noting that physicians diagnose many diseases, including migraines, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's disease, based on their symptoms alone. The NCBI says that while there's still a lot we don't understand about how our brains work, scientists understand that mental illnesses are associated with changes in neurochemicals. For example, in people who have depression, less of the neurotransmitter serotonin is released into the synaptic space than in people who don't have depression. Certain medications, like the one my doctor recommended, called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, relieve symptoms of depression by causing an increase in the amount of serotonin in the synaptic space. Serotonin has a lot of complex functions, not just related to mood but it also helps you learn and remember things. If your brain isn't releasing enough serotonin, you might feel depressed, but you might also have trouble learning in school or being productive at work. With approximately 20% of Americans, or about one in five people over the age of 18, suffering from a diagnosable mental disorder each year, depression alone costs an estimated $23 billion a year due to decreased productivity and absenteeism of employees. Approximately 20% of doctors' appointments are related to anxiety disorders, such as panic attacks. And this isn't just an issue for adults. According to the World Health Organization, suicide is the third leading cause of death for 15 to 24-year-olds. Mental health problems affect one in every five young people, and an estimated two-thirds of them aren't getting the help that they need. Kids and teenagers whose mental illness goes untreated tend to fall further and further behind in school they're more likely to drop out of school and are less likely to be fully functional members of society when they reach adulthood. The Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency says that an estimated two-thirds of youth and juvenile and correction facilities suffer from at least one mental health problem. An estimated 900,000 people with mental illnesses end up in jail every year, even though many of them have not committed crimes or are waiting for a trial. In the 1950s, when policymakers started closing state-run psychiatric hospitals, they promised to replace them with localized mental health care. But that promise was never prioritized or funded, so in most cases, it didn't happen. I have to confess that every time I've heard about another mass shooting by someone with a mental illness, my immediate reaction has been to wonder, why aren't we doing a better job addressing mental illness on a societal level? Why isn't it a given that all of us have access to mental health services, not just in crisis, but as preventative care? Mental health is a societal issue, not just a personal one. But in the course of researching this episode, I learned that my assumptions about mass shooters and mental health were wrong. A 2021 study by Columbia University's Department of Psychiatry showed that only 8% of mass shooters had serious mental illness. Shooters were more likely to have issues with substance and alcohol abuse or criminal records. The vast majority of people with mental illnesses aren't dangerous. They look a lot like Winnie and me. Earlier this month, Joshua Gordon, the director of the National Institute of Mental Health, wrote that from prior research on disasters and epidemics, we know that immediately following a traumatic experience, large numbers of people report distress, including depression, anxiety, and insomnia. He says that most people will recover, but it can take some time. But he also writes that the pandemic has not affected all Americans equally. As is often the case, unfortunately, the most vulnerable among us are also feeling the mental health effects most intensely. Job loss, housing instability, food insecurity, and other risk factors for poor outcomes have disproportionately hit vulnerable communities. He said that the mental health impacts of COVID-19 continue, From all that we know, it is clear that these impacts will outlive the pandemic itself. He said that it's crucial that we help all Americans who struggle with mental health. As challenging as this pandemic has been, there's an opportunity here to take the hard lessons we've learned and use them to make life better for all of us. And that effort doesn't only include things like changing our health care and incarceration systems. It might mean figuring out how to get outside more. In a study of 20,000 people, a team led by Matthew White of the European Center for Environment and Human Health at the University of Exeter, found that people who spent two hours a week in green spaces, either all at once or spaced out over several visits, were more likely to report good health and psychological well-being than those who don't. As long as people feel safe, time in nature can lower blood pressure and stress hormone levels, reduce nervous system arousal, enhance immune system function, increase self-esteem, reduce anxiety, and improve mood. During this year away from our home, one of the best changes I've made to my work life is to do meetings over the phone instead of on Zoom so I can talk while I go for a walk in the woods. When our team began working on this episode, I was a little bit afraid of where it would take us. Even though I've been open about my struggles with depression in past episodes, admitting that I was taking antidepressants, that I'd even had suicidal thoughts, was a line I'd never crossed before in my writing. But as we were writing this episode, something wonderful and surprising happened. Each time our team met to talk about the episode and go through the script, we also shared our stories. Knowing that each of us had struggled didn't make us think less of each other. It made us more human. Winnie started that process by sharing her story, and I'm not the only one who was inspired by her courage. So before we end this episode, I want you to hear from the team who created it.
2: I'm Melissa Lent, and I'm an apprentice here at Shelter in Place. When I heard Winnie's story, I immediately wanted to work on this episode, but I was also scared because mental health is something I've often struggled with and I'm still learning how to talk about. There's so much in Winnie's story that I relate to, immersing myself in extracurriculars, feeling sad and anxious about school, taking on too many things in my pursuit of finding work that really matters. To the outside world, I was doing great. I had a 4.0, I was a peer mentor, a director for my university's TEDx conference, and a manager for a sustainable fashion collective. I won a prestigious fellowship that allowed me to travel across the world to Vietnam. Sometimes it felt exhilarating to be a part of those things. But other times, I felt empty, like I was just going through the motions of life. Some days, I'd feel the work pile up, like when I'd have to write a paper for school, but instead would sit in front of my computer and just stare at the screen. The minutes would tick by, and I'd feel more and more anxious, until finally, I'd start crying, unable to write a single word. Looking back, I can now see that what I was experiencing was depression. It felt like sinking to the bottom of the ocean. I was underwater trying to find something or someone to pull me back to shore, but the waves were rough and the water filled my lungs every time I tried to breathe. Sometimes I felt so sad that I'd avoid my family or friends. Even though I knew they loved me, I was afraid to admit to anyone that I was struggling. Even now, it's scary for me to talk about. There were two things that helped me during that time that are still helping me today. First, I did eventually end up talking to people in my life who could help me. They listened to me, supported me, and urged me to cut back on the number of things I was trying to accomplish. My senior year of college, I quit almost everything I was doing. For the first time, when I came home, all I had to do was homework and it was a relief. I realized that I'd overloaded myself in the past because it made me feel successful to know that other people perceived me as being able to do all of those things easily. I was scared of what people would think of me if I stopped all of that activity, but slowing down forced me to realize that my identity isn't about what I can accomplish, but who I am. Even now, I struggle to accept and embrace that. And then Winnie shared her story. I'm blown away by her courage. The conversations our team has had behind the scenes have made me feel so much less alone. When we tell our stories, we normalize mental health. We banish the lie that there's something wrong with us and replace it with what's actually true, that most of us will struggle with mental health at some point in our lives. That struggle is part of what it means to be human but we don't have to go through it alone. Even though it still scares me to talk about my own struggles, the experience of sharing my story with this team, with you, has also been really healing. It reminds me that there's help when we feel lost in that dark tunnel of despair, and there are
3: people who will hold out the lights that will get us out to the other side. My name is Eve Bishop, and I'm an apprentice here at Shelter-in-Place. I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, but up until a few years ago, I didn't have the words to describe it or the tools to work through it. During my freshman year of college, in addition to struggling with a then-undiagnosed anxiety disorder that was becoming increasingly debilitating, I experienced a dark period of depression. I had trouble seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't think there was a light. I felt completely isolated, like Odysseus in the middle of the ocean during a storm. I didn't have much hope for the future. I finally started therapy. I hated it at first. It was mortifying to share my struggles with a stranger. I almost quit. But after a few months, I found a new therapist, and it was a completely different experience. I felt seen in those conversations, and I began to see improvement in my life as I gained perspective on what I was going through. After several months of therapy, I decided to start taking SSRIs, medication which my doctor said would help with both my anxiety disorder and my depression. It's been almost three years since I made that decision and it's changed my life. I know there's a lot of stigma and a lot of misinformation about mental health medications. A lot of people think that by taking antidepressants, you'll lose a part of yourself or become robotic and subdued. But that hasn't been my experience at all. SSRIs have simply provided the balance that my brain chemistry desperately needed. I've accepted the fact that I will probably always need SSRIs. And that doesn't make me any less of a person. It just makes me human. Moving from that dark tunnel to a place where mental health issues no longer take over your life is an illuminating feeling. What I've realized in working on this episode is that there are people in my life holding torches to light the way. People like Winnie and Laura and Melissa. As gut-wrenching as it is to realize that so many of us struggle with mental health, it also gives me hope. Because at one point, I really did believe I was the only person who felt this way. We hope that as you listen, you feel seen by this episode. We want to remind you that you're not alone and encourage you to find people who can shine lights into the darkness.
1: If there was anyone out there that was listening and maybe going through what I am or previously had those thoughts, it's going to be a journey. It's a hard journey. It's a really, really annoying journey to be on. And it can be super, super frustrating and kind of just want to fast forward and get to the end of it. But that's what makes it so rewarding to live through that journey, to go through it step by step and to build on who you are from the day before to become a stronger person. So despite how annoying that journey is, it is going to be a worthwhile journey to take.
0: Thinking back to that noisy bedtime scene with my kids and the tears that inevitably followed, the way we got through that situation was to do RAIN. I think what's hard about RAIN and about mental health in general is that to deal with it well, we have to accept that we can't just wish the negative emotions away. We have to admit that there's a problem and be willing to do some work to address it but it's also empowering to realize that we can allow those negative feelings to be there, to deal with them in whatever way is needed, and to seek help if we get to the end of that process and we still need more. What's cool about rain is that you can do it for yourself, but you can also do it as a tool to extend compassion to someone else. When my kids start yelling and I wanna yell at them too, it helps a lot to stop and take a break and ask myself, what emotion am I witnessing in them? Is it just anger, or is their anger a front for sadness or fear? Can I allow those hard emotions to be there and remember what it was like to feel overwhelmed by them when I was their age? Can I see physical evidence of those feelings in their bodies and their red face howls or the way they stomp on the floor? Can I bring myself to reach out to them if they'll let me, to say, it's okay, my little dumpling. This is hard, but we're going to get through it. Shelter in Place is listener-supported. We'd love for you to consider supporting the good things happening here, including our new apprenticeship program, where we're training the next generation of women podcasters and creative entrepreneurs. You can donate for as little as a dollar a month at shelterinplacepodcast.info. Shelter in Place is part of the Herd at Media Network. The shelter-in-place music was created by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. Additional music and sound effects for this episode came from Storyblocks. Our associate producers for this episode were Winnie Shee, Eve Bishop, and Melissa Lent. Nate Davis is our creative director, Sarah Edgel is our design director, and our amazing season two apprentices are Winnie Shee, Eve Bishop, Melissa Lent, Isabel Obrecht, Alana Herlands, Michelle O'Brien, Clara Smith, Samantha Skinner, Elin Tekle, Shweta Watwe, and Chuen Zhang. Until next time, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis. And now, if you're still listening, here's a little outtake.
4: Hello, everyone. This is Grace. I'm are going to teach you something. It's called RAIN. First, R is recognize. Because, you know, when you say RAIN, R is the first letter. What feelings do you feel? Like is it angry, or sad, or frustrated? Sad. So that's R. So the A is allow. Can you allow your feelings? Anger, I allow you to be there. I allow you to be there. You won't be here forever. You're not going to be here forever. I know you won't be here forever. And then you do I investigate. Where in your body do you feel it? Do you feel it in your heart? Do you feel it in your jaws? Do you feel it in your eyes? I feel it in my heart. And then nurture is the last one because you know when you say rain, N is the last letter. times we say it's okay my little dumpling or It's okay, sweetie. Can you say, it's okay, sweetie. It's going to be okay, my little dumpling. Sometimes we add P for pray and B for breathe. P-brain. So there you have it. It's okay, my little dumpling.